Um, Our scripture reading this morning is continuing in Nehemiah. We're in chapter 5 today. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from this time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, From the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, 
all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Fiona. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, I've got a question for you as we begin this morning. Maybe one to discuss over coffee afterwards or maybe over lunch later. Uh, the best sports-related film ever made. What do you think? Best sports-related film ever. For me, there's one that stands out above every other. Maybe you agree with me on this one. It's called Remember the Titans. Anybody seen it? Yeah, a few people nodding. It's a brilliant story uh, of two high schools that, that merge together. One that's a predominantly black high school, one that's a, a predominantly white one. Uh, and it's at a time in America whenever racial tensions are, are high. Um, and there's this new American football team that's formed from these two schools. Um, but the problem is the players don't like it and the coaches don't like it. Uh, and the parents don't like it. The people in the community don't like it either. Um, there's lots of fighting between the teammates, lots of bitterness and, and division among the players. Uh, and Denzel Washington, good old Denzel, he's the, he's the coach, Coach Boone, who is tasked with trying to unite these divided players in order for them to then win a state championship. Um, it, it's a brilliant story. Uh, but it's, it's clear throughout the story that, that this team, they're, they're really uh, special. Uh, there's a lot of uh, special players in the team, uh, a lot of really talented players. Uh, and the biggest threat that they face isn't the external opponents that they have. It, it isn't even the parents or those in the community who, who have their opinions. The biggest threat to their success is actually themselves. It's the internal division uh, that, that could actually uh, just wreak havoc and mean that this team just is destroyed. Uh, because united this team will stand, they will be successful together, but divided the team will fall. And as we come to Nehemiah 5 this morning, that's kind of the banner that stands over God's people we saw uh, last week God's people are continuing the work of building the wall, rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem, um, and they started to face external opposition in that. We've seen it before in the book of Ezra, and now in Nehemiah's time, we're seeing it as well. People from outside the family of God who are opposing the work, they're trying to derail God's people in doing what God has called them to do. But we saw last week how that ultimately failed. Uh, their leader, Nehemiah, he encouraged the people. He armed the people for battle. He rallied them by, by calling them to remain strong, resolute in their, work, in their work, trusting the Lord. But here's the thing, the devil is clever. John reminded us last week how he's the one who's ultimately behind all opposition that God's people face in this world. He's the one who's ultimately trying to derail God's people and carrying out God's work. And he knows that if he cannot destroy the work of God from the outside, well, then he will try to divide it from the inside. And this is what chapter 5 is all about. It's a chapter which shows the danger of internal division in God's church, amongst God's people. The people are fighting amongst themselves. Bitterness is taking root. And it's not just the rebuilding of the walls that's threatened. It's the very existence of the community itself. United they stand, 
but divided they will fall. And in chapter 5, they are beginning to be divided. And the sad reality is, confrontation within the church is something the devil often tries to stir up to divide God's people and to destroy God's work. This is not something that we just see here in Nehemiah's time. It's something that we see throughout the New Testament in the early chapters of the book of Acts. It's something that we see in Paul's letter, letters to the churches. He often is addressing confrontation and division amongst God's people. We see it and we experience it in our time too. Maybe we've heard the sad stories of churches where there's bitterness and division, uh, where confrontation has been handled badly. Maybe we've even experienced that ourselves. The truth is, in a sinful world, where we're all sinful people, confrontation is something we will all experience. Whether it's in our church, or our workplace, or in our relationships with family, friends, a spouse, our children, We experience confrontation in all areas of our lives. But the big question is, how do we handle confrontation in a godly and biblical kind of way? Is there a way to handle confrontation in a manner that actually glorifies God and is for the good of his people and for the good of his kingdom? That's what we're going to think about this morning. And I think this passage in Nehemiah has loads of, of practical wisdom and advice for us in this area to help us answer that question. So look firstly with me at verses 1 to 5, and let's see the need for confrontation. The need for confrontation. Verse 1 tells us that there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now here's the context. Times are hard. The people are neglecting their normal work, the normal things that they they usually do to earn money, to spend time rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And it's this specific work then that's kind of causing these issues because the people aren't earning as much money as they used to because their focus is on rebuilding the walls. And the situation is made worse, actually, because we see in verse 3 that there's a famine. So it's a time when there's less work, There's less income, there's less food available, and the people and their wives are complaining. Now, it's pretty unusual for the wives to be mentioned. It specifically says they're among the protesters, and it's probably because they're the ones who are having to prepare the meals and put food on the table to feed the family. Uh, And with no money uh, and with less food available, it's proven really hard to do that, and, and they're frustrated. You can imagine the conversations that are happening in the homes between the husbands and the wives. The husbands are saying, Look, dear, we're rebuilding the walls. And the wives, you can imagine their response to them saying, that's great, great that you're rebuilding the walls, but we can't eat walls. We need food, proper food. This family needs fed. And what we see in verse three to five is that there's kind of three groups of people who are doing the complaining. What they all have in common is they're all in need. Verse two, we've got the poorest people. They've no land, no farms, They've people who, who have many in their family, it says there, they're large families, and they simply just cannot feed themselves. Verse three, we have people with some land and some property, but they're having to mortgage their property to buy food. And then verse four and five, we've got those who have mortgaged their property, but now they're having to pay taxes. And these taxes that are being imposed on them, they're just too difficult for them to pay back. 
And so they're having to sell their sons and daughters as collateral. This is people who are being exploited. And the travesty of the situation is, it's their own people who are exploiting them. The rich inhabitants of Jerusalem are lending money to their poor brothers and sisters, but charging them interest rates that they can never keep up with. And they're even using property and people like sons and daughters as collateral. The people are starving. They're in need. And they have no choice. And as we listen to this, we know it's not right. If, if this was our day, there would be outcry. We'd say that this is injustice. But the people here in Nehemiah's day, they knew that it was too. They knew it was contrary to God's law because in Exodus 22, verse 5, it says, God said to his people, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, charge him no interest. God insisted on mercy, compassion, kindness. Those were to be the marks of his people. Debts were to be canceled every so often. People were not to be permanently enslaved by their debts. Why? Well, because living like that reflected the very character of God and what he is like. He is compassionate. He is kind. He has canceled the debts of his people. God called his people to be holy as he is holy. To be different from all the other nations around in the way that they reflected his glory. But all of that's being ignored by the rich people. And it was starting to create bitterness and division in the community. And there's a real problem here for Nehemiah. And so hopefully you see why there's a need for confrontation. Hopefully you see that something has gone badly wrong in the community and there's a need to address it. Now, the issue of exploitation that we see here in Nehemiah 5, I'm not expecting it to be an issue that is here in our church But I do think the principle behind all this is something that is really relevant for us. Something we should definitely take note of this morning. Because when sinful attitudes or sinful behavior come into the community of believers, those sinful attitudes or that sinful behavior will eventually divide the community. Unless it's addressed, unless it's confronted. It may not be exploitation like we see here, but it might be gossip or slander. It might be unkind words being said from one group to another. It might be a spirit of unforgiveness amongst God's people. It might be a lack of compassion or care for the needy, the vulnerable within the family. Sin that is not confronted, sin that is allowed to fester and take root will eventually divide God's people and destroy God's work. And there's a personal responsibility in all this, as we ourselves should be those who are striving to live a holy life as God calls us to, to live it at peace with one another, to reflect God's goodness and his kindness and his compassion to each other and to those outside of the church. We should be living, as Paul says, In Colossians 3, striving to put off our old selves with all of its sinful attitudes and divisive behaviors and to put on the new self, which is ours in Jesus Christ. There's a personal responsibility in this. But there's also a collective responsibility that we have towards each other too. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are the body of Christ 
that we are individual members of that one body. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. Because in Christ, we are united to one another. In Christ, we are to care for one another. In Christ, we are accountable to each other. All for his glory and for the good of his kingdom and his people. All for the good of of the watching world out there as they look in at us and see the way we live together, the love that we have for each other. And so that God has given the glory as they see Christ in us. That's why as church members, when we covenant together, we agree to confront each other in our sin. It's why if if you've noticed, when parents are dedicating their children here at the front, if they are members, when they dedicate their children, they stand before the church and they agree to welcome the church confronting them in their sin. We don't do it to, to pick holes in each other be unkind or ungracious to each other. No, we do it in love and with grace, all for the glory of Christ and for the good of his kingdom and his people. We do it because we know that sin divides and sin destroys. And none of this is easy. It's not easy to do this. Confrontation is not easy. And that's why, secondly, I want us to look at the difficulty of confrontation. I want you to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes here for a moment. How might you have reacted? Because Nehemiah is put on the spot here. It's awkward. He's under pressure to get the wall finished. He doesn't need this kind of distraction. He's got the threat of outside enemies as well. And the last thing he needs is for the people to be fighting amongst themselves. And another reason why this is so difficult is because of the people who are being accused of wrongdoing. Did you notice who it was? We're told in verse 7, they're the nobles and the officials. These are the the movers and shakers in that day. They're the most influential people, the people with the money. And to confront these people could potentially lead to more issues for Nehemiah. They've got power, they've got influence, they've got money. Is it really worth rocking the boat with these kinds of people? It's like a young pastor in a a new congregation who, who sees that there's a pattern of unbiblical behavior amongst some of the church members. Uh, And he knows that the the people who are involved are amongst the most influential and powerful in this church. They're established people. And to address the issue could cause more problems for him. Nehemiah is just a newcomer. He's not been in Jerusalem that long. His position isn't very strong. And now he's got to take on some of the most established families in the community. And that's not easy. Confronting problems can be awkward. Confronting issues can be painful. We can be anxious about how people might respond or or what the outcome might be. And Nehemiah must have been tempted to try and put these people off who are complaining. He, He must have been tempted to maybe even just sweep the issue under the rug, pretend like it's not there or not a big deal. Maybe he could have just tried to string the people along a bit, you know? Give them all the good chat that he's dealing with, but actually his focus is still on the wall and the rebuilding work. He might have even been tempted to side with the rich and the powerful in this. There's always a temptation for weak leadership to do that. We see so much of this kind of leadership in our world out there, in our government, maybe even in our workplaces. Leaders who make empty promises, leaders who sweep issues under the carpet 
pretending, uh, or hoping even, that they'll be forgotten about. And the sad reality is, though, that this kind of leadership is prevalent in God's church as well. There have been too many times recently when things have come to light in churches or in Christian ministry where issues have not been confronted where they needed to be. Influential leaders were given the benefit of the doubt. The weak were silenced. Sinful behavior was allowed to go unchallenged. And that just cannot happen. Yes, confrontation is difficult, but avoiding it when it's needed has the potential to be disastrous for the church. Potentially, it could completely erode our witness in the world. And I want us to think about this on a personal level too, because the reality is most of us don't like confrontation. I said this morning in our prayer time, this is what we're doing this morning, and Anne said to me, oh, I don't like confrontation. And that's probably what everyone's reaction is. If it's not, if you're someone who gets a kick out of confrontation, if you're someone who goes looking for confrontation, then I think you probably need to go home and have a think about that and whether that's a good and godly thing. Generally, most people dislike confrontation and will go to any lengths to avoid it. The thing is, we, we should go to considerable lengths to avoid it. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. We should be patient and long-suffering and full of grace, just like our Father in heaven. We should avoid confrontation whenever and wherever it is possible. But there are times when we must confront. There are times when it is completely necessary. Jesus himself demonstrates this in the Gospels. Maybe it's in our marriage or in our family. Maybe it's with our friends, in our workplace, in our church family, in our MC. Maybe it's in the wider church. There are times we will need to confront issues and address problems. And when it's necessary, to avoid it is cowardly and will only lead to greater problems down the road. But how do we do it? How do we do it in a godly way? Well, that's thirdly what we're going to look at in verses 6 to 11. Because we see Nehemiah's godly approach to confrontation. A godly approach to confrontation. Here's the real practical part of this sermon, because I think there's so much we can learn from Nehemiah's approach. Firstly, look at how he faces up to the issue. He doesn't run away. He doesn't ignore it, pretend like it's nothing. He doesn't spin it as something it's not. With courage and conviction, he says there is a problem that needs to be addressed. He takes responsibility, doesn't he? And look how he's honest about how he feels as well. See that verse 6? When I heard their outcry in these words, I was very angry. He has this kind of righteous anger because of the injustice and ungodly behavior that's affecting God's people. Again, we've seen this before with Jesus Christ in the Gospels. But notice how Nehemiah doesn't let his emotions get the better of him. You see that in verse 7? He has this kind of Ephesians 4 response of being angry but not allowing himself to sin. He says, I was angry, but I took counsel with myself. Literally, that means he, he pondered these things in his head. And we've seen this from Nehemiah before, the kind of man he is from these opening chapters. He's passionate. He cares. Yes, he gets angry here, but he isn't hasty. He doesn't fly off the handle or let his emotions get the better of him. He's balanced. 
He's measured. He takes his time. It doesn't say it here, but you can imagine him doing what we've seen him do time and time again, which is bring this issue before the Lord in prayer. Bring his emotions even before the Lord in prayer. Talking to God before he talks to anyone else. Asking God for his help, for wisdom, for his leading and guiding in navigating this tricky situation. And I wonder if that's how we respond when confrontation arises. Do we ponder or do we pounce? Do we talk to God about the situation before we talk to anyone else? Or before we talk at anyone else? There may be times whenever we need to to take some time to, to take counsel with ourselves as Nehemiah does here, to calm down to think about how we respond in a wise and godly way, to to ask God for help in navigating the situation. And look then how Nehemiah chooses a proper forum for dealing with the issue. He calls a public meeting of the people. The sin is public. It affects many people, and so the confrontation has to be public as well. And choosing the proper forum to deal with confrontation is really important. If someone offends you in private, then the proper forum to deal with it is is in private conversation with them. Not talking to other people about it, not gossiping behind their back, but the problem has to be dealt with in private. Here the problem's in public, so Nehemiah deals with it in public. He doesn't talk to anyone else. He doesn't try and undermine these people behind their back. It's all out in the open. And look how he sets out the facts as well, verse 7 and 8. You're exacting interest, each from his brother, We've bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. See how he calmly and accurately states the facts of what's going on here. He doesn't make any personal attacks. He doesn't abuse them or demean them. He doesn't try and attribute motive to them as well. I think that's really important. He doesn't say, I know why you're doing this. I've seen this all before from your light. You're always doing this. He doesn't do any of that. He just simply shows how their actions are wrong and how it goes against God's word. And it's not any surprise in verse 8 whenever we read that the people were silent and they could not find a word to say because they know those are the facts. In my experience, often what, what causes the harm and confrontation, maybe amongst Christians too, is usually not the issue which divides them, It's the things that can be said in the heat of confrontation. Personal things. Accusatory things. Maybe even nasty things. Sometimes even it's the things that are left unsaid that become the issue. There's a lack of openness, of honesty about what's going on. There's no sharing of perspectives. This is what has happened. This is how it made me feel. Can you help me understand from your perspective why it's happened like this? See, whenever we don't do that and we leave that space, often that's when people start to attribute motive or intention, which actually wasn't the motive or intention in the first place. That's where where people get presumptuous rather than curious. And that approach can be so much more harmful and hurtful than the, the actual issue which started the whole thing off. Nehemiah doesn't attack anyone or attribute motive, he simply says, here's what you're doing. Do you see what you're doing? And then in verse 9, he appeals to their consciences. The last thing, uh, sorry, the thing that you're doing is not good, he says. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? He appeals to the knowledge that they have of what's right and wrong. They know God's word. And so he knows that they will know they're breaking God's law. He says, you're not behaving like one of God's people. This is not the way we're to be together. This doesn't glorify God. This isn't what you know God to be like. And then finally in verse 10 and 11, he offers a positive way to resolve the problem. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and all that you have been exacting from them. So often, the issue when confrontation arises is that it doesn't end. It's just parked somewhere for a while. There's a temporary ceasefire. But the problem's still there, still bubbling below the surface, ready to resurface again when something else causes friction. See how Nehemiah offers a a positive way to resolve this, to bring an end to this? He's clear on how reconciliation can happen, how peace can be what everyone experiences moving forward. In verses 12 and 13, the rich people, they know what they have done wrong, and they know how they can make it right. And so they promise that they will stop doing what they're doing and pay back what they've taken. And at this point, Nehemiah in verse 12, he insists that that they make a formal public oath. uh, That This is almost like a a confession of their sin and and a repentance, a public confession and repentance, if you like. Uh, I think he's wanting the people to show that their confession and repentance is genuine, that that they're not just going to give empty words, but actually they're going to follow through on what they've said. And I think this bit's important because it does kind of signal the end of the confrontation. It signals a fresh start, a moving forward, striving for peace and reconciliation. And it's a really godly approach, I think, because in the way that he is dealing with them, that is the way God has dealt with us. I think that's what he's always wanting to model and demonstrate. It's it's like what we said in our liturgy this morning in Psalm 100, That when we confess our sins, that we know God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins to God, when we repent and turn back to him, God does not hold our sin against us. He, He does not keep dragging it up again, bringing up things from our past. No, he actually promises that when we forgive our sins and turn back to him, that he remembers our sins no more. That he removes them as far as east is from the West. This is Nehemiah's approach to confrontation. Really practical, really wise and godly, I think. One that we can learn a lot from. He's honest, he's direct, he's courageous in addressing the issue, but he's calm and he's truthful and he appeals to their conscience and he offers a practical and biblical way forward to deal with all this. Now, I'm conscious that up until now, this could very much have felt like you were sitting in a a seminar on how to deal with confrontation. And that's not what I want to do. It's never what we want to do here in the pulpit uh, on a Sunday morning because we always want to preach a sermon that brings us to Jesus Christ. And the question always is, what does this passage teach us 
about Jesus? How does this passage point us to Jesus and to the gospel? And this is why I want to finish with verses 14 to 19, looking with you at the basis for confrontation. The basis for confrontation. This is a really interesting little footnote which Nehemiah has written later. It's at the end of his 12 years in office. That's what he says in verse 14. And the little footnote is about himself. Do you notice that? It's about his own actions, about what he has done over the course of his leadership of God's people. He tells us in verse 14 and 15 that he didn't claim all his rights as a governor. He didn't get involved in land speculation. That's verse 16. He didn't claim all his expenses. That's verse 18. He extended generous hospitality to needy people around him. That's verses 17 and 18. He's holding up his service before God. The way he has cared for God's people. And we might ask, what's he doing? Is he being boastful? Is he congratulating himself? No, I don't think he's doing that at all. He's not looking for the praise of men. We saw that, or we see that in his prayer in verse 19. His only concern is that he would honor God. He says, remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. All that he's written at the end here is simply Nehemiah's way of saying, I lived as an honest man. You know that, God. You know that I didn't ask of other people what I wasn't willing to do myself first. You know that my actions and my motives were pure. And all this is really important because Nehemiah exercised authority over God's people. But he himself recognized that he was under the authority of God. And in order to lead God's people, in order to kind of lead them with integrity, he had to be a man of integrity, a man of sincerity, a man of transparency. How else could he have gained the respect and the trust of the people? How else could he have persuaded them to follow his leadership? And this is what formed the basis of confrontation here. Nehemiah first confronted himself before he confronted anyone else. He was a man who looked in the mirror at himself and his own life before he looked out the window at anyone else. He was a leader who made it his first priority to himself walk in the fear of the Lord. And this is a really valuable lesson for us to close with as we think about dealing with confrontation, dealing with with problems, potential problems amongst God's people. Because the temptation might be, might be to think that when wrongdoing arises that, that might divide God's people and might need to be dealt with, it might be easy for us to look out the window at everyone else rather than looking in the mirror first at ourselves. The end of this chapter, I think it reminds us that our greatest need is to be confronted with the truth of the gospel, that we need to be changed that we need to be made right. Our greatest need is not to confront our brothers and sisters with their sin, but to be confronted with our own sin. That's the basis of biblical confrontation. It's the starting place. Because starting there will stop us from confronting others from a place of pride rather than a place of humility. Because I know like whoever the person is who's maybe gone astray, that I am someone who's gone astray as well. 
that I have sinned against God, that I have wronged others in many, many ways, and it's only by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, that I have been changed, that I can be changed, transformed to walk in a different way, in a way that honors God and glorifies him, in a way that that truly loves my neighbor as myself. The first responsibility each of us have is not to set other people right, but to be made right ourselves. And the only way that can happen is if we do what we see happen at the end of this confrontation, if we ourselves confess our sins and repent and turn back to God. That's the only way. We turn to him through faith in Jesus and we walk in the forgiveness and the newness of life that Jesus Christ won for us at the cross. Then, and only then, can we be the kind of people who, like Nehemiah, encourage and lead others to do the same. Whether that's our our children at home, our husband or our wife, our fellow brothers and sisters in this church in our MC, we walk in the fear of the Lord, trusting in Jesus, depending on Jesus for our salvation, and then we encourage each other to do the same. This chapter is all about how we deal with confrontation and potential division within the church. But I want us to finish by praising God for the unity that he has given us as a church over the last 11 or 12 years since this church was planted. As Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is a good and pleasant thing. We have experienced the sweetness of that unity. We pray for more of that unity. We pray that God protects our unity as a church. And that when confrontation does come, which it probably will at some point, God will graciously lead us and equip us to deal with it and to approach it in a godly way, in a way that glorifies him, in a way that maintains our witness in this world. There's only one way that that will happen, though. Only one way that's possible, and it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the unity we have now as a church is only possible because of him. That's what this communion meal represents. That's what we we gather as a body and show in our gathering together. We are united to God. We have peace with him now and forever through Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, it was shed and it was broken to give us peace, to unite us to God, but it also represents our our unity to each other. We are united together. Jesus Christ, in his death, has broken down all the dividing walls of hostility between us. He's made love between us possible. And so we come together as God's people, as brothers and sisters, to celebrate that unity that Jesus Christ has won for us, to rejoice in it, and to come to the table this morning, if you're a Christian, knowing that that as we approach Jesus Christ, that he will give us more grace, that he will give us more grace to live as a united people, to bear each other's burdens, to forgive each other when there is confrontation and wrongdoing, to love each other in a way that demonstrates his love for us. So as we come to the table this morning, if you're a Christian, let's come 
Let's serve each other together. Let's demonstrate our unity and let's once again receive God's grace through Jesus Christ to help us live in these ways. Would you stand with me now? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us through your son Jesus. We thank you that unity being reunited to you is possible because of Jesus. It's all because of your grace, Lord. We don't deserve it. We walked away from you. We turned to our own way, living in sin, rejecting you in your way. But yet you graciously came to reconcile us to you, to bring peace between us and you through Jesus Christ, through him coming, living the perfect life we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserved, and rising to life again to give us new life, to to give us a new relationship with you again. Father, we thank you for that, for the gospel of grace, for the gospel that brings peace and unity. We thank you that as we gather this morning, we're a picture of that unity that Jesus Christ, you have won for us young and old, people from all different backgrounds. You've united us all through you, Jesus, through what you've done for us. It really is a good and pleasant thing when when your, your people dwell in unity, when we are together in unity. Lord, I pray that you would protect our unity. I pray, Lord, that whenever confrontation maybe does arise, that, that we wouldn't shirk it, that we wouldn't avoid it, pretend like it's nothing. If there is a need, Lord, for us to address sin, I pray that you would give us godly wisdom in how to do that. You would help us to be bold and courageous in doing that, just as we see Nehemiah is here. But Lord, I I pray that we would always come to you asking for more of your grace in dealing with each other. Lord, we desperately need you. We need to be confronted each day ourselves with the truth that we need you that without you, that we would continue to go off in our own way, to stray from your word, to stray from what we know to be life. But Lord, we thank you that that by your grace, you continue to call us back, that your spirit living in us, it it stirs us uh, to, to live in your ways, to live in ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, thank you for all that you've done, for all that you continue to do in us. Lord, as we, can, as we work to, to, to build this church, Lord, we wouldn't, I pray we wouldn't be doing it in our own strength, but we'd be dependent and trusting on you completely. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.